Section 12 of the Complete Works of Tacitus, edited by Thomas Gordon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Anna Simon. The Complete Works of Tacitus, to which are prefixed political discourses upon that author. Edited and translated by Thomas Gordon, with introductory essays by Thomas Gordon. Volume 1, Discourse 9. Upon Courts. Section 1. Of Freedom of Speech, and How Reasonable It Is. To the foregoing discourse upon flattery, I thought it might not be unsuitable to subjoin another upon courts, the place where that pestilent and unmanly practice is wont chiefly to prevail. During those reigns which I have been describing, when power was established in terrors, and subjection converted into abasement, small was the wonder that restraint upon speech was no inconsiderable link in the public chain, and care taken that such as presumed to breathe aught but vassalage should not breathe at all. This was wretched policy, barbarous, and impossible to be practised. The passions are not to be extinguished but with life, and to forbid people, especially a suffering people, to speak, is to forbid them to feel. It is not indeed to be expected that men should be suffered to meet together tumultuously, in order to publish their mutual discontents and wrongs, and to inflame one another. But complaints uttered in their families, or dropped occasionally, or communicated to a friend, can never affect authority. The more men express of their hate and resentment, perhaps the less they retain. And sometimes they vent the whole that way. But these passions, where they are smothered, will be apt to fester, to grow venomous, and to discharge themselves by a more dangerous organ than the mouth, even by an armed and vindictive hand. Less dangerous is a railing mouth than a heart filled and inflamed with bitterness and curses, and more terrible to a prince ought to be the secret execrations of his people than their open revilings, or than even the assaults of his enemies. Of all the blood spilt under Tiberius and the following tyrants, for words, and for no greater cause a deluge was spilt, how small a part conduced to their security! None that I remember, but every drop was an indelible stain upon their persons and upon their government. Every drop derived hatred, and consequently weakness and danger upon it. Rigorous punishment for small faults, or for such as in the common opinion pass for none, is a mark of ill politics. It makes the spirit of the administration look hideous and dreadful, and it renders every man who finds himself liable to the like faults a capital enemy. Surely it ought to be a maxim in government that errors which can have no consequences ought to have no punishment. Oliver Cromwell, who seems to have seen far into the heart of man, was little affected with the hard words and invectives of particulars, and as high as he carried authority left people to talk and rail. The same is true of the late regent of France, one who well knew human nature and the nature of power. It was then common to see Frenchmen swagger and storm as freely as an old Roman would have done against an unpopular magistrate. In truth, where no liberty is allowed to speak of governors, besides that of praising them, their praises will be little believed. Their tenderness and aversion to have their conduct examined will be apt to prompt people to think their conduct guilty or weak, to suspect their management and designs to be worse than perhaps they are, and to become turbulent and seditious, rather than be forced to be silent. When nothing but incense and applause will be accepted or borne, all plain dealing, all honest counsel and true information will be at an end, and banished, to make room for deceitful adorations, for pleasing and pernicious falsehoods. If princes, whose memory is disliked, 
had allowed their subjects and contemporaries to have spoken truth to them, or of them, probably posterity would not have spoken so much ill, as it is probable they would not then have deserved it, and I am apt to believe that it had been better for all of them to have permitted all that could have been said, than to have missed hearing what it imported them to have heard. Better to have heard the disgusts and railings of their people than that their people were armed against them, or revolted from them. A fate which has befallen some of them, who, having had courtiers over-complacent, or ears over-tender, learned that they were dethroned before they had learned that they were not beloved, and found scarce any interval between the acclamations of flatterers and the strokes of an executioner. Such is the genius of courts, where ill-tidings are generally concealed or disguised, such too often the silence and soothings of courtiers, who tell only or chiefly what is pleasing, and such sometimes the pride and impatience of princes, that they will suffer nothing which ruffles their passions to approach their understanding. Section 2. The Spirit of Courtiers What? Some Good Ones. It is something else than zeal for telling truth that carries man to court and keeps them in it. To raise an interest, or to preserve it, is the more prevailing passion. And because whoever sets his foot there, with any view to place and favour, is always sure of competitors, be his person or pretences what they will, ever so considerable or inconsiderable, his chief care will be to conquer opposers and secure himself. And as there ever will be some opposition, real or apprehended, that care will be constant. Hence the spirit of a court, selfish, suspicious, and unfriendly and hence the supple spirit of courtiers, to love and hate, court and avoid, praise and persecute the same person with notable suddenness, just as he is promoted or disgraced, and can help or hurt, or is to be deprived of all capacity to do either. To be well with the subsisting power, with him who holds the reins of authority, and distributes, or causes to be distributed, the blessings and terrors of power, is the main pursuit. His motions are chiefly watched. His affections and aversions are studied and adopted, and thus a smile or a frown from the throne, or from one who is next to the throne, is eagerly catched up, seizes the phases of a whole drawing-room in an instant, and is handed down with signal uniformity through all classes of men, from a grandee to the lowest clerk in an office. A court is a great exchange, where one or a few have favours to dispose of, where many resort to procure them, and where all therefore strive to outgo in the ways of pleasing every one who has the same aim, and study every method to render themselves acceptable. Hence their obsequious countenances, flattery, insinuations, and zeal, some passions concealed, some disguised, and others personated. Hence, too, their attachment to such as can help to promote them, and their neglect of such as cannot. Hence with them good fortune, however unworthily placed, always passes for merit, and abilities ever sink with power, and hence their falsehood, ingratitude, and courteous behaviour. That this is true of the herd of courteous, I believe will be allowed. Without doubt there are exceptions, and men of great honour, disinterestedness, and friendship are often to be found there, men who scorn treachery and baseness, and would risk all rather than do a mean thing. Such were Manius Lepidus, Seneca, and Burrus, such Coxeus Nerva, and Julius Agricola, and such were the Chancellor de l'Hospital, Chancellor Hyde, and the Earl of Southampton. All these great men were courteous, and lived in courts full of corruption and dangerous designs. All practised some degrees of suppleness, 
submitted their opinions to the necessity of the times, and, by defeating many evil measures, were the authors of much good, though not of all that they would. Cardinal Richelieu makes heavy complaints of the opposition which he found to his best designs from the credit and intrigues of women, and the whispers and ill offices of malevolent courtiers. These great men above mentioned were likewise often wronged. Bad counsels which they had heartily opposed were imputed to them, and, when they concurred with some excesses to obviate much greater, just allowances were not made, and their motives were spitefully construed. Thus the Chancellor de l'Hospital was severely censured by the Huguenots for passing the edict of Romorantin, which bore hard upon them, though by that edict he prevented their utter extirpation, and the misery of all France, by hindering the introduction and establishment of that monstrous and bloody tribunal, the Inquisition, in which design the court and parliament were already agreed, and I think the edict for that detestable purpose was ready. For such signal and glorious service the Protestants first railed at him, and the Papists afterwards cursed him. Lord Clarendon, too, was reproached with the sale of Dunkirk, and for many other exorbitancies which the sincere heart of that upright minister abhorred. Nor could the good counsels of Seneca secure him from much envy and defamation, and many great ministers, thought to be the authors of evil counsels, have fallen into disgrace or perished for daring to offer such as were benevolent and upright. Section 3. The Arts of Courtiers, Their Cautiousness and Its Causes Plausibleness and guises are inseparable from courts. Men must not seem to understand all that they apprehend or know, no more than they must speak all that they think or feel. Princes often dissemble with their subjects, their ministers with them, and all with one another, and every one talks as he appears to the best advantage. Some dissimulation there is absolutely necessary, and therefore lawful. Men are not obliged upon all occasions to speak the truth, though whatever they speak upon any occasion ought to be true. Nor ought any one to be blamed for hiding his passions and sentiments, when the discovery would only serve to hurt himself. But few people in private life can be trusted with secrets which, published, would lessen one's peace or name, and in courts there are much fewer, perhaps none. Particular interests and passions are often shifting there. Men who were once close united become widely divided. Friendships, old and long, are turned into bitter and vindictive enmity, and he who would once have risked his life for the preferment of his friend would venture as much upon a disgust to bring him to a scaffold. This might be exemplified by a thousand instances in all times and histories. Nothing keeps the passions more awake than the pursuit of power. Nothing touches the pride of man more sensibly than neglect or disappointment in that pursuit, and nothing is more tender and suspicious than pride. Few have got so much as not to aim at more, or have had ever so much assistance, but they expect further, even where the same is unreasonable or perhaps impossible, and from disappointment ensues disgust. Too rarely seen is that gratitude which looks backward, and generously subsists upon favours past, without fresh claims and element. How much more common is that which must be kept up by daily benefits, and, when bereft of such food, expires! nor is the seizing of gratitude the worst that is to be apprehended from selfish and ungenerous men. The room of it is too often supplied by spite and revenge. And if it be natural to hate such as we have injured, this hate must be great in proportion to the injury done. 
and what injury can be greater than that of being barbarous to benefactors? These considerations are sufficient to make such as frequent courts and no men slow and wary in confiding, and to put them under considerable reserves even where they confide most. No one cares to be at the mercy of a friend that may be an enemy. Hence, in the making of friendships anywhere, it ought to be one of the first considerations whether there be any probable causes which threaten a rupture, whether the business of love or power or fame or anger or interest be never likely to interfere and produce the most bitter of all enmities, that of friends. This weariness at courts extends even to words and looks. The conversing with great men and great affairs naturally produces secrecy and silence. For, since such is the folly of the world, that whatever a great man says, however light or accidental, shall be deemed deep and mysterious, if it has the least allusion to the transactions of the times, and since they who hear it will be apt, through vanity, to quote it, great men seldom say anything upon such subjects, and even when they hear the talk and sentiments of others, they take care that neither their answers nor their countenance shall betray their own. Sometimes a word thoughtlessly dropped, or an unseasonable smile, or some mark of surprise, has given light into an important design, and marred it entirely. The like circumspection they observe in their discourse upon particulars, because their discourse may be easily altered and poisoned by the malice or folly of such as hear it, a practice as usual at court as in any country village. And many a man has been disgraced by his own words, whispered and altered by a virulent breath, nay the very same thing reported with a different tone and action has had the same effect and where the alteration of the words was considerable those of them which were forged and criminal have been believed because the rest that were true and innocent were well attested i shall illustrate this by the story of young nero the son of germanicus in the court of tiberius it excellently shows the jealousies of princes and the spirit of courts that young prince was entirely beloved of the Roman people, who had adored his father, hence the distaste and dark suspicions of the emperor, his great-uncle and grandfather by adoption. Sejanus, who had already poisoned the emperor's son Drusus, and was plotting the overthrow of the whole reigning house, fed the hate and apprehensions of the old prince by malignant reports and infusions concerning the young, now the next in succession this he did by the interagency of hollow whispers and tale-bearers who related and blackened everything that escaped nero who was also hard used and browbeaten on purpose to extort from him severe and unwary complaints such as might fill up the charge against him moreover his domestics and retainers impatient to see him in power that they might shine in its trappings were continually exciting him to rouse his courage and exert himself to meet the zeal of the people to gratify the passionate wishes of the army, as the only expedients to daunt and repulse the insolence of Sejanus, who now despised him as a boy, and his grandfather as superannuated. The young prince, however naturally modest, was yet by so many instigations transported beyond the circumspection which the station that he was in, and the many eyes that were upon him, required, and thence gave vent to words which though they betrayed no sign of any treasonable purpose yet being ill-guarded and savouring of contumacy were by the spies purposely placed about him carried instantly well heightened and embittered to tiberius nor under all these imputations and aspersions was he warned or admitted to vindicate himself but beset on the contrary with several melancholy and boding appearances 
some of the court carefully shunned to meet him, others just greeted him, and then instantly left him. Many with whom he had begun a conversation broke it off abruptly, while the creatures and adherents of Sejanus looked on with a malicious laugh. Tiberius, too, always received him sternly, or with a hollow and abrading smile, and, whether the youth spoke or said nothing, there were crimes in his words, crimes in his silence. Neither did his bedchamber and the shades of night secure him from his enemies and accusers, for even his restlessness and watchings, nay, his sighs and dreams, were by his wife divulged to her mother Livia, and by her to her adulterer Sejanus. Drusus also, his younger brother, was, by this wicked politician, drawn to combine against him, as one who stood between himself and the empire, and was better beloved by their common mother Agrippina a fresh cause of emulation and prejudice. Yet at that very time was Sejanus laying a design against the life of this same Drusus, whom he knew to be of a spirit tempestuous and fiery, and thence the more obnoxious to snares. Thus he began the tragedy of these two youths, and that of their mother, but before he had finished theirs suffered his own, which was abundantly bloody, but abundantly just. Their brother Caligula was a better courtier, he studied the temper and manner of Tiberius, and in all things conformed to it, but was particularly a complete scholar of his in dissimulation. Upon the condemnation of his mother, upon the exile of his brothers, not a word, not a groan escaped him, nor any symptom of resentment or pity. The passions are nowhere more agitated than at court, yet nowhere are the signs of perturbation more suppressed. Section 4 of slanderers and tale-bearers in courts, the folly of craft. The occupation of slander and whispering will, like other occupations, always thrive according to the encouragement given to it, and being easily exercised will be ever engaging fresh adventurers. What requires less labour and conscience than to find out or frame or envenom a story to the prejudice of another, especially when he is not to be heard in his own defence, nor suffered to confront his accuser, nor perhaps even knows that he has one. There is an endless appetite in mankind for intelligence and secret history, and in proportion to that appetite they who feed it are well received and encouraged. But of all places they fare best in courts. Great men are in the power of such people much more than they themselves imagine or mean, these assiduous shadows of theirs, who have their ear, and know their tempers, watch their unwary moments, and observe when they are gay and open, when disobliged and angry, when full of thought and business, and will be sure to improve the present temper and opportunity. They know the characters of men, know whom their patron loves, whom he dislikes, to whom he is altogether indifferent, with what is likely to be believed of each. They extol some, decry others, flatter him, misrepresent all, and sooth or alarm or divert him, just as his humour and their drift requires. If with this they can play the droll and make dry and malicious jests, they are accomplished in their way. But most villainous is that talent which is good for nothing but to do hurt. It is like death and poison, fit only to take away life. Vatinius was a buffoon of this pestilent caste, and, from working in a stall, taken to court, at first for jest and diversion, but, having a malicious spirit and a sarcastical turn, soon became a terror to every worthy and illustrious man, insomuch that in wealth and favour, and in power to do mischief, he grew to exceed all the other ministers of iniquity in Nero's court. 
In all courts there are many who rise into notice and preferment for no greater merit than that of efficientness, buffoonery, and tail-bearing, and courts are the places in the world where bad and worthless people can do the most harm. A barber, a porter, a valet de chambre, or even a child, are all capable of doing notable mischief there. Those instruments, let them be ever so mean, will find some or other to hear them. These will find others, and a story that has run through a hundred hands and can be traced to no original, or to a very low one, perhaps the idle prattle of a chambermaid, may, for all that, have no mean influence. But whatever reason men have, upon all these accounts, to keep a guard upon their lips and behaviour at court, there is still room for great frankness and candour, and no necessity of illusion and deceiving, though it be often necessary to let people deceive themselves, and would be often imprudent and dangerous to undeceive them. It is certain that in the transacting of great affairs the rules of morality admit of some relaxation. This is to be lamented, but not to be helped. Such frequently are the exigencies of a state and such always the crookedness and depravity of the heart of man, that were you to deal openly, to tell all that you mean, all that you know, and all that you aim at, you would expose your country to ruin, and yourself to scorn, perhaps to the block. The most that can be done is to save appearances, and be wary of what expressions are used, for, upon these occasions, and many others, men are not to be upbraided for their silence." I know some who have gone through nice embassies, some who have concluded intricate negotiations, others who have administered the highest offices, and still preserve the character of high honour, and untainted veracity. This shews the thing to be possible, and the promise of assurance, just given to serve a turn, and therefore not observed afterwards, does often more injury to him who made it, than the serving that turn did good. Cardinal Richelieu was not liberal of money nor promises, but he always performed more than he undertook, hence the zeal and firm adherence of all who depended upon him. Cardinal Mazarin denied nothing, performed nothing, was believed in nothing, and his ill-faith was become proverbial. Hence no man was ever more hated, no man in his station more despised. He could never rely upon any party, for he deceived all parties and all particulars, and nothing could support him but the blind obstinacy of the Queen Regent and the mere weight of royal power armed in his defence. But in spite of the queen and the authority royal, he was forced to run and skulk for his life. The parliament set a prize upon his head, and issued ordinances to the people to fall upon him as a public enemy. Yet he had never carried sovereign power so high as his predecessor, nor ever exerted it so terribly. But he had no faith nor honour, and therefore no personal friends, to this hour Richelieu is considered as a minister who, though arbitrary and severe, was yet an elevated genius, and a man of veracity to particulars. Mazarin, as a man not rigorous indeed, nor vindictive, but sordid, addicted to low cunning and lies, and with all the eclat of a great minister, unable to hide the little tricking Italian. Craftiness is a despicable quality, and undoes itself. He who has it, and acts by it, can never disguise it long, and when it becomes apparent, it becomes impotent, arms everybody against it, brings hatred or ridicule, at best is perfectly useless, and the man, even when he deals uprightly, is suspected to mean knavishly. What gained Tiberius by all his profound subtlety and wiles, but to have his best actions ill-construed, and his sincerest professions to be disbelieved? 
what gained philip the second of spain by that strange and intricate scene of false politics concerted to transfer his own guilt upon the head of his minister antonio perez but to bring home the just imputation of that guilt to his own door and to produce full proof where before there was only suspicion sincerity is very consistent with human prudence and often a part of it considering the reputation that always attends it and men even in courts may be very upright without being unguarded nor can courtiers ever do business with one another without some openness and candour i have seen it asserted somewhere that people are oftener deceived by distrust than by acts of confidence i have observed as plain dealing in courtiers as in any other sort of man in the world it is ridiculous to carry reserve and deepness into everything i know not a more contemptible sort of man than such as mimic business and mystery i have seen some subaltern courtiers look as important demure and wary as if they had carried great matters and even the weight of the state upon their shoulders this affectation serves to raise their credit amongst their servants and artificers in town and in the country amongst their tenants and neighbours and diverts better judges there are others who really believe themselves to be in secrets who take shrugs and nods mere words and shadows for real confidence and communication and live in happy ignorance under the conceit of high trust and intelligence some few too there are who besides despising the foppery of being thought trusted where they are not are careful to hide it from the world when they are tis men of this turn who chiefly do credit to a court and whoever does it credit does it service section five how much worthless people abound in courts and why as in a great family where there are numerous domestics in spite of all the care that can be taken to examine the characters of servants when they are admitted or to regulate and watch their behaviour afterwards there will be some still unworthy of their places and a discredit to their master how much more so must it be in a court where not only the officers but even the officers are so numerous where so many have a right to prefer or recommend and where so many do both from strange wretched and selfish motives nay often for considerations altogether dishonourable and scandalous it is therefore no wonder that though the politest men are always found at court so likewise are always a strange rabble of creatures ignorant mercenary ridiculous and disagreeable who owe their preferment to chance whim money dirty services to names affinities nay to impudence and folly and one who has no pretences to anything else neither to education nor capacity nor honour nor spirit nor even to good looks and common sense shall find pretences to a place and probably get one nor is this to be remedied since he who gives it does not choose but take and has often stronger reasons to oblige the recommender than to reject the recommended i have known a friend nay a relation of a great minister disappointed twice of an office which was even intended for him but by potent intercession was bestowed elsewhere the first time upon one whom the minister knew not whom the recommender knew not nor whom even the lady who spoke for him knew but one who for a sum of money engaged a gentleman's valet de chambre to engage the lady's woman whom the valet courted to engage her lady whom she governed to engage the last recommender who undertook it and succeeded he who had the first pretences was again put by upon a vacancy and the creature put in whom the minister was known to despise and almost to loathe but sacrificed his opinion his aversion and his friend to mediation not more honourably obtained 
at so critical a juncture as that of a rebellion, I have heard of one who by a letter written with the same pen which he had used in corresponding with the rebels, procured a handsome provision for his brother, who wished the rebels as well as he, and had distinguished himself in a very public place by acts of disaffection, and disloyal healths. Nor in this instance was there any money or intrigue at all. The recommender had only once told a hearty lie for a great man in a nice case, and sworn to it. Hence his merit and influence. For an act of honour or spirit done to serve the public, he might perhaps have found less regard, perhaps not so much as excess as befell some who did. It is certain great men often prefer such as they dislike, and such as do them no credit, sometimes with their eyes open, frequently through misinformation, and in both cases through solicitation and importunity. Men of merit often want interest, often application and boldness, whereas one who has no one worthy qualification is the more likely to have importunity and shamelessness. It has indeed been often a notable advantage to a man that he had not sense enough to be ashamed nor balked. Nay, I have known such a negative accomplishment to be the making of his fortune— a rational man will take a rational answer, or even a trifling one, when he sees it meant for a rebuke or a refusal, or perhaps he has too much pride to press and besiege, or to ask above once. But he who has no understanding to mislead him from his interest, or to apprehend what is said to him, he who is incapable of a repulse, or to be ashamed of begging and teasing, but has an unchangeable front and unwearied nonsense, stands in a fair light to have his pretenses considered. Though he cannot persuade, he can tire, and he finds the fruit and advantage of talents in the absolute want of them. He is despised and promoted. A little share of good sense and modesty would have ruined him, and he might then have been neither disliked nor minded. Such is the force of recommendation without reason, or against it, and such too the power of assiduity, unencumbered with parts. There are strange inconsistencies in the make and turn and education of men. There are those who can calmly encounter death and terrors in any shape, yet shall tremble in speaking two or three words to a secretary of state, a task which would not balk a common footman. Others can harangue readily and boldly before a great assembly, yet are struck dumb in the company of women, a place where a page or an ignorant beau can be entertaining and eloquent. Some have talents, but not the use of them. Many have capacity, but want application. Many are hurt by too much application not directed by capacity. Several have good sense and activity, and can apply both to serve a friend, but neither to do good to themselves. In some you find excellent parts frustrated by predominant passions. In others, eminent courage and spirit drowned and depreciated by a modesty almost childish, and numbers there are who, under a notorious defect of ability, acquirements, and every amiable quality, are pushed up as high as any of these could have pushed them, perhaps much higher than all of them would. So that, in the odd assortment of human things, fortune would seem to correspond with the caprice and wantonness of nature. I have already owned that it is impossible to keep many worthless people out of accord, considering how many ways there are to get in. But owing to such is a good measure of the obloquy usually thrown upon courts and ministers, as the falsehood, the low tricks and spirit of these underlings are all ascribed to the genius of the place and of power. And under the character of insincerity and ingratitude it is usual in popular discourse and opinion, though it is really very unjust, to throw all courtiers together. 
I even believe that there are some of them foolish and base enough to like the reputation of slipperiness and deceiving, for the sake of being thought good courtiers. From the numbers, too, and little minds of such, we may account for the general outcry and reproach which from that quarter usually follow any worthy minister fallen into disgrace. They are for the powers that be, and though they be the work of his hands, were thrust into place by his late might, and are still basking in the sunshine which he let in upon them, yet they are ready not only to leave a falling house, but to help pull it down. It is the temper of renegadoes. The celebrated Sancho was first warmly in the interest of the injured Basil, one who had lost his mistress for no want of merit, but through the superior wealth of his rival Gamacho. Yet the savoury skimmings and loaded ladles out of Gamacho's kettles so effectually turned the supple spirit of that courtly squire that, without more ceremony, he began to justify and extol the happy supplanter, and to rail plentifully at poor Basil under misfortune and disgrace. What can ministers expect, when they have raised such dust, but that with the first contrary wind it will blow into their eyes? Mean spirits, selfish and impudent, can never take the impressions of gratitude and honour, no more than such as are modest and generous can ever be ungrateful or base. Yet hard is the task to weed a court of such, not only because the same interest that recommends does likewise protect, but because there are so many candidates ready to fill their places, and supported by so many patrons and intercessors, that more will be disobliged than can be gratified by the change. And after all, perhaps the fresh comer may not prove the more deserving man. Neither can the great officers easily cure the exorbitances and exactions of the inferior, especially when the same are become common and inveterate. All men, even the greatest men, desire to live easy with those they have daily to do with, and will not carry to incur the clamour and curses of subalterns, who, though they are but small men, yet being numerous and supported by all who are interested in corruption, are able by continual complaints and noise to weaken the credit of the most puissant minister, and to make him very uneasy. Section 6. The Remarkable Fickleness and Insincerity of Courtiers I had once an opportunity of seeing the steadiness and gratitude of courtiers put to trial, upon an apprehension of a change in the ministry. I was strictly curious in my observations and inquiries, and my discoveries were such as have fully confirmed me in all my former and present sentiments of these people. There were some who gave proofs of signal friendship and constancy to the standing ministry. Several were wary and silent, but many made preposterous haste to shew their levity and selfishness and, from the behaviour of most, there arose warning enough, even to greatness itself, to rely for its best security upon wisdom and innocence. A little before the death of Tiberius, then past hopes, he was reported to be dead. Instantly the courtiers crowded about Caligula, the next heir, with a torrent of congratulations and zeal, and he was going forth thus attended to assume the pomp and exercise of sovereignty, when sudden tidings came that the emperor, who had lain some time in his swoon, was revived, and calling for some refreshment to strengthen his spirits. Instant terror seized all. Most of them dispersed and fled, some assumed an air of mourning, many feigned utter ignorance. Caligula was struck speechless, and from the highest hopes expecting his last doom. Macro only remained undaunted. He commanded the ancient emperor to be smothered with a great weight of coverings, having first ordered everybody to quit the chamber. 
Amongst the many good things and excellent scents in the memoirs of Cardinal de Retz, there occur frequent pictures of the court, particularly upon the beginning of the commotions in Paris. At the palace royal, and especially in the cabinet, upon that occasion, every individual assumed a person and acted a part. The coadjutor acted the innocent and the dupe, but was not so. Mazarin affected to appear resolute, but appeared more so than he was. By starts and intervals the queen counterfeited great temper and gentleness, yet had been at no time more bitter and enraged. The duke de Longueville feigned extreme affliction, yet felt a sensible joy, as he was the man in the world the most delighted with the beginnings of all affairs. The Duke of Orléans, in speaking to the Queen, shewed great warmth and vehemence, but presently after fell a-whistling, a usual habit of his, with all the indolence in the world. The Marshal de Villeroy displayed gaiety and unconcern to make his court to Mazarin, but to the coadjutor he owned, with tears in his eyes, that the State was upon the brink of a precipice. M. de Bautreux and M. de Nogent played the buffoons to humour the Queen and drawled upon the commotion though both these men knew well that, in all probability, this farce of theirs would too soon be followed by a tragedy. The Abbé de la Rivière only, though the most notorious poltroon of the age, was persuaded that this popular insurrection was but smoke. This he maintained stiffly to the Queen, and this pleased her. To fill up the compliment of actors, the Marshal de la Meilleraille, who had hitherto joined with the coadjutor in representing the terrors and consequences of the tumult, all on a sudden changed his past part and took that of the champion, with a different tone and other sentiments. In an instant he was all rage and contempt and defiance. In short, the queen and the cardinal took every one who told them truth for a certain enemy to themselves, and for a promoter, at least a secret well-wisher, of the revolt. When this was the reward of plain dealing, who would venture his place and favour by dealing plainly? Thus, for want of honest information and sincere advisers, and by suspecting or disbelieving such as were so, the state had nigh perished. The whole detail in the Reds is full of curious incidents, full of strong and just reflections, as is almost the whole book. End of Discourse 9